Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hello and welcome to Babbage, The Economist's weekly podcast on technology and science. I'm Kenneth Kukier, a senior editor at the newspaper. And coming up on this week's show, would you take a DNA test to see if you're likely to get cancer? And if so, would you show it to your health insurance company? Whether policies are going to become more expensive is, is sort of a second question. And, and, and cynics would say they may well. And could insects really be used as evidence in murder mysteries? So there are hundreds of species associated with a dead body, but there are actually only a few dozen species that are intimately associated with a cadaver that have a dead body, and particularly human cadavers, as part of their life cycle. But first, we turn to nature to see if a butterfly could hold the key to creating a Star Trek-style holodeck. Most of us are familiar with the 3D images we get on credit cards or passports, but holography does have uses beyond this, from 3D art installations to measuring the three dimensions of packages for shipping companies. Big, expensive lasers are required for these applications, but new research has shown that you can get rid of these lasers by copying a butterfly from South America. Our science correspondent, Peter Haynes, joins me now down the line to talk more about it. Hello, Peter. Hi, Ken. How are you? I'm great. So, Peter, holography. I love it. The hologram. Tell me, though, how do you create a hologram with lasers? Well, it's first worth pointing out, I think, that most holograms are not what they're cracked up to be. So the one that we all saw of actor Jared Leto promoting his new film at July's Comic-Con was in fact nothing of the kind. It was either a simple projection or a version of what is known as an illusion called Pepper's Ghost. But to make a real hologram is much more complicated. You have to split a laser beam in two, scan one of the half beams over the object you want to become a hologram, recombine the half beams, then capture the image created by the recombined beams on a photographic film. And the result is an interference pattern created on the film by the interaction between the two beams. And if you then shine a laser on this film, effectively reversing the process, um, you produce a 3D image. So that's how you create the classical holograms we all think about floating in in midair. But most of the holograms we see are much more prosaic. They're the smudgy images that act as security features on credit cards, passports and banknotes. But we have a new way of doing it and we've learned something from the Morpho butterfly. Explain to me what we've learned. Well, the blue morpho, which is found in Central and South America, is an amazing butterfly. It has vivid blue iridescent wings that can be up to five to eight inches across. And they're not the product of any pigment, but of the structure and the arrangement of the scales on their wings. And these scales refract light, splitting it into its component wavelengths, and then diffract it causing those wavelengths to interfere with one another. And the consequence is that blue wavelengths are intensified and reflected back to the onlooker, while those of every other colour cancel each other out and are scattered. The other thing is, unlike today's holograms, 
the colour and appearance of amorphous wings remain the same regardless of the angle you're viewing them from. Whereas, as we all know, if you look at the hologram on a credit card, immediately you go off to one side, it disappears effectively. And so what have we learned from the butterfly that we can cross-apply into our own holograms? Well, this research, um, which was led by Dr. Rajesh Menon of the University of Utah, is fascinating. First, it completely dispenses with lasers. And second, the hologram is captured not on a smooth photographic film, but rather on a sheet of transparent plastic with microscopic bumps and grooves on it. So in essence, the bumps and grooves of that plastic sheet acts like the scales of the Morpho's wings, refracting and defracting the instant light to um, produce the effect you want. The fascinating thing with this is that to create the hologram, you don't need a laser. You can use a simple cheap flashlight that you can buy from a hardware store. Brilliant. So I now understand how I have cheap holograms. What am I going to use them for? Initially, the team is focusing on the, the flat kind of holograms you see uh, on banknotes and credit cards uh, because their technique can make these far less smudgy, they can be seen off uh, at any angle, and they're much, much brighter, up to 10 times brighter than uh, the little holograms we currently see. And so when do you think we will start seeing these holograms in real life? I think for the security holograms, we'll probably see them within three to five years. For the kind of thing that we generally think of as a hologram floating in free space, I think that would take a little longer. And the whole idea of movies, well, that's a little further down the road. And as for the idea of a holodeck, well, maybe in our lifetimes, but maybe not. Peter, I think we're going to see the holodeck in our own lifetimes, but that's because I'm an optimist. You are indeed. Thanks a lot for joining us. A pleasure. Next, if you could take a test and be told whether you're likely to get cancer or not, would you do it? What about if your insurance company could also access that information? Knowledge is power, but it may come at a cost. As genetic testing becomes cheaper and more widely available, more people are getting it and learning about their conditions. Insurance companies want access to that information. Our correspondent, Sasha Nauta, has been looking into this and joins me now from Amsterdam. Sasha, welcome. Thanks. So first, what in the world is going on? <laughs> well, Ken, two things are going on, and they're both very exciting and, from a scientific point of view, I think very good news. The first is that genetic tests are becoming way cheaper than they used to be, and they are becoming more available and the other thing that's changing is there's a move from just diagnostic tests, which you would take once you have symptoms and a doctor wants to see you know, whether there's a genetic reason for them, to predictive ones where perfectly healthy people take a predictive test where their genes might tell them something that may happen in the future, or at least puts them at greater risk. So I agree with you that this sounds like a very great thing, that people can take more care of their health and therefore get to better health outcomes. The problem is that insurance companies want it to charge us more money. <laughs> well, whether policies are going to become more expensive is, is sort of a second question, and, and, and cynics would say they may well. But the starting point is that insurers agree that information is power, and therefore they think if a 
customer has a piece of medical information, relevant medical information, then it should be shared with the insurer. It's only fair. Otherwise, the playing field isn't equal. And therefore, they fear maybe one day only people with a genetic reason to get a form of insurance, such as long-term care insurance or life insurance, uh, may come to them. Okay, so should we ban this from being accessible? That's a great question. And in fact, that's exactly what some regulators are doing. So the Germans have said, oh dear, we don't know what to do. So let's just ban these direct to consumers tests. The problem with that approach is, of course, firstly, the internet, frankly, if a test is available in America, as it is for a company like 23andMe, which got um, FDA approval recently, then it can also be ordered by somebody in Germany. So the outright banning is probably not the solution. I think the solutions are going to be more in the field of what can and can't information be used for? Because I, I think over time and at the moment, consumers are mostly protected. So, for example, Britain has a moratorium where insurers have all agreed to not use this information for now. But I think over time, as these sorts of tests become easier available, more commonly used, eventually we as a society are going to need to decide what type of insurance products are sort of a common good that should be accessible for everyone, regardless of their genes or their health makeup, uh, and which products are not. So you could imagine, for example, that health insurance is seen as a much more common good than, say, life insurance uh, or even perhaps care insurance. And I think that's not really a scientific question. That's very much a, a societal one and a political one. Now, Sasha, let's have us both look into the crystal ball and let's flip the default setting. And let's ask the question, at what point will every citizen be required to have a genetic test and for that genetic test to be used by the national healthcare authorities and the insurance companies and for themselves to lead better lives? At what point does this become the status quo? Well, Ken, I think it's unlikely to be in your lifetime, but it may be in mine. <laughs> Ouch. I'm not old. I'm experienced. Sasha, thank you very much. Thanks. And so to you, listeners, what do you think? Should insurance companies be allowed to access this genetic information? Let us know. We're on Twitter at Economist Radio, also on our Facebook page, and via email at radio at economist.com. And finally, this week sees the publication of an article in the journal Peer J by researchers at the University of Lille and the University of Mons. The article is of a rather gruesome nature how insects can be used to help find a murder scene. In the case of murders, bodies are often moved from the murder scene to another location, for example, from the bedroom to the garden for burial. This often makes finding the scene of the crime, along with all the evidence, tricky. Insects could hold the answer, though. On the line is an entomologist, Dr. Tim Cockrell of the University of South Wales. He was not involved in the study, but he thinks about insects all the time because, after all, he is an entomologist. Tim, welcome. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great. So my first question to you is... How many species are associated with cadavers? So there are hundreds of species associated with a dead body, but there are actually only a few dozen species that are intimately associated with a cadaver that have a dead body and particularly human cadavers as part of their life cycle. Those few dozen species, they can tell us limited things, but what they can tell us is very, very important. 
So what are these things that they can tell us specifically? Well, if you watch the TV programs like CSI and that kind of thing, you might find a, a dead body on the village green and the entomologist will look at the body and say, ah, look at this, we found this very, very specific rare beetle. So we know that this body must have come from the woods. Well, sadly, we can't be quite as specific as that. The general use of insects in forensic science uses a group of species called the blowflies. They're the green bottles and blue bottles that fly around in our kitchens in the summer. And these insects have very, very specific and very well-studied life cycles. Now, insects work in slightly different ways to us in that if they're kept at warm temperatures, they develop much more quickly than if you keep them at cool temperatures. So if we find a dead body, we can take some of the larvae of these blowflies, the maggots that might be feeding on the body, and we can take them into the laboratory and rear them at a very constant temperature. And by doing that, we know exactly the point in their life cycle that these maggots were when we picked them up. Now, here's the brilliant thing. We can then look at the weather data from the area where that body was found. And we can say that, for example, at 10 degrees, it must have taken that insect exactly 15 days in order to get to that stage where we found it. So we can say that that body is at least 15 days old. So by knowing these intimate things about the life cycles of the insect, you can tell very, very specific things about the time of death, for example. So now forensic entomology has been around for a while, as you've been describing it. What's new now? Well, what this paper tells us is that when you look at these ideas of insects being able to tell us about the relocation of a corpse from one place to another. Well, there are some very useful tools, but actually it's a lot more difficult than we might imagine. So if you imagine finding a body in the woods and you might find a, a group of different species on it that don't exist in the woods, well, then you might be able to say that it comes from a different place. However, insects are excellent at finding a dead body. They're excellent at travelling great distances. So the blowflies, for example, can travel several kilometres a day and can very, very efficiently track down a dead body. So actually, it's very, very difficult to, to determine whether a body has been moved from one place to another. Now, it might be the case that if a body has been moved hundreds of miles, for example, there might be an insect that has a very, very restricted range that is found on the body, and so it could only have originated in one place. But actually, it's so difficult and it's so complicated. This paper is telling us that basically it's a lot less useful than the TV programmes might make out. So this is very interesting. Although we can use the technology, the rate of false positives are high because just like with fingerprinting in the early stages and more important with DNA today, there's lots of cases in which we can get it wrong. Absolutely. And DNA is an interesting one. So, so we're right at the dawn of, of using molecular techniques in forensic entomology. Do you know of any real cases where forensic entomology has been used successfully? There was a, a rape case in the USA in the late 20th century, and there was a suspect identified, and the rapist was known to have worn the ski mask like a balaclava, and a similar balaclava was found in this suspect's house. Now, the rape happened in the summer, and the suspect said, oh no, this ski mask has been away in storage since the previous winter. Now, the ski mask was examined, and it was found that it had these sticky seeds attached to the ski mask. Now, these seeds were dissected, and inside the seeds, there were the larvae of a particular weevil, a kind of beetle. And these were sent off to the forensic entomologist, who managed to identify the species, and discovered that it was a species that is only active in the summer, and the larvae don't survive over the winter. So we could say with certainty that that ski mask had actually been out of storage and out in the open during the summer period when the rape was committed. And faced with this evidence, the suspect actually admitted guilt in the rape case. 
So is this hard to do? Do you need a trained entomologist in the forensic science team? How would that happen? This is actually a very difficult thing to do that requires very, very specific expertise. But there are very, very few people that exist nowadays. So, so the world needs more forensic entomologists, certainly. Tim, my final question to you is that many of our listeners of the Babbage podcast are serious professionals with important careers, and they're always looking for a way to get ahead. They're probably thinking of knocking off some of their colleagues. How can they be sure to evade this technique? <laughs> That's a really interesting question. Goodness. Well, insects are so successful and so good at finding a corpse that I don't think there is any escape. So I would suggest to try to get a promotion. So hard work rather than the first degree. Yes, that is definitely what I would advocate. Tim, thanks for joining us. Thanks a lot. Now, there is a special part of our show. As a treat to our listeners, we have decided last week to start giving away some of the books that we've been clearing out of The Economist as we move headquarters from our iconic building in Mayfair to the embankment in London. The number of people contacting us has been overwhelming, and we've been really pleased that we have a lot of books to give. But importantly, not all the books are purely on technology, and a lot of them are from my own bookshelf, and I really want to keep them, but I can't. So what I'd like to do now, with your indulgence, is take you up to my office and record there about some of the things that we have on the bookshelf, and if you like it, or like others, just email us at radioeconomist.com and send us your address, and we'll ship it off to you. So now we're back in my office, and I've got to say, I love these books, and I don't want to give a single one of them away, but for Babbage listeners, I will. Let's first start with um, Paul Tuff, How Children Succeed, Grit, Curiosity, and the Hidden Power of Character. This is an amazing book. It made the New York Times bestseller list, and it does what it says on the tin. It's about how if you raise children well and expose them to a little bit of a hardship but show them that they can actually fight back from it, they do really well. The second was Anne-Marie Slaughter's A New World Order. She's an incredible scholar and a great director of a foundation in the U.S., and it really is a nice synopsis of where the world is and how we need to make it better. Sheila Smith wrote a book called Intimate Rivals, Japan Politics and a Rising China. I have a second copy of it, so that one I would be happy to find a good home for. We have books by Peter Drucker. We've got a wonderful book on Hamilton and the creation of the America's First Central Bank by John Gordon Steele. Another foreign policy book is by Walter Russell Mead, also of the Council of Foreign Relations on America's Grand Strategy. And this is a book that I really don't want to give away, but for the right home, I will. It's called Reason and Imagination, The Selected Correspondence of Learned Hand, who was America's foremost jurist and a wise person to give great counsel to people and some Babbage listener who would like it. So if you'd like one of the books, we encourage you to share what you think of the Babbage podcast on social media, and then email us at radioeconomist.com. Finally, that is it for this week's Babbage. Don't forget, you can pick up this week's Economist and find us online at economist.com. And in London, this is The Economist. Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a $1 trillion tech sector valuation. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.